Jesus' great high priestly prayer that begins uh, in verse 1 and runs all the way through the whole chapter is this prayer of Jesus. It's the longest prayer by Jesus in your Bible, and we're looking at another section of it today. It's, and I think what makes this section in particular fascinating is that it gives you a window into the kinds of prayers that Jesus is offering for you and for me even now as he is in heaven. Uh, the book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is our great high priest who is set down at the right hand of God and even now prays for us as we live our lives now, which is kind of a fascinating thing. And you might be wondering, well, what kind of things does Jesus talk to the Father about on my behalf? Well, this passage actually gives you insight into some of those things. So if you have your Bible, uh, if, you have, if you have a Bible, uh, please open it to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. I'm going to be looking at verses 6 through 19 today. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Uh, so we've got some on the table in the back. We've got more in the office. We'd be delighted to give you a Bible uh, that would be yours to keep. So uh, what the Scripture says is this. I have manifested your name to the people. This is, again, this is Jesus praying. Whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, uh, you might open our minds to receive it, to understand what it says, and to obey it. Father, um, as the Word says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And Father, we want to be obedient to your Word. We want to not only know what it says, but to put it into practice. 
And so, Father, I pray this morning that we might read and understand and rightly interpret your word, that we might obey it, and that it might transform our lives. And, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are three major sections of this of this first part of Jesus' prayer. And in the first one, Jesus identifies who it is for whom he is praying. If you look closely at verses 6 through 10, what you see is that Jesus is not praying for everyone in the world. That's important. He is praying specifically for his followers, for those whom, as he says it, his Father has given him out of the world and uh, for the people who have chosen to follow him. And I think we do well to look closely at how Jesus describes his own followers. They are, first of all, people whom Jesus was given by the Father out of the world. They are people, in other words, who were once rebels and sinners against God, but who have now been chosen and saved by him. And as a result of that, God has given them to Jesus. That's what the text says, that I have, they, you have given them to me out of the world. That, that they were once rebels, and now they are followers. And they have been given to Jesus by God himself. And in addition, Jesus has revealed the Father's character, his name to them. Now, if you, if you look in your Bible frequently, someone's name will be used as a shorthand for their character, for what kind of person that they are. And so as an example, you get Jacob. Remember, anybody remember what Jacob's name means? It means the cheap, the supplanter, the chiseler, the swindler, Jacob, right? So those of you who have kids named Jacob, sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh, and, and that characterized Jacob's life for a long time. He was, he was the, the younger of a set of twins. He was born a few minutes later, and he was always the guy who was trying to tilt the table his direction so that all the marbles would run his way. And then later, he meets God actually literally face to face. And God touches his life in a direct way and gives him a new name, Israel, which means he wrestled with God, right? By the way, he wrestled with God and lost, but, but he, he wrestles with God because that was the characteristic of Jacob's life, that he struggled and wrestled in his relationship with God to be obedient and to really follow what God had told him to do. And that came to characterize the whole nation that grew out of Jacob's own descent 
that as his descendants were born, they continued in the same way as their father Israel, wrestling with God. Sometimes they were obedient, sometimes not. And so this idea of names is very important. And so when Jesus says that I have revealed your name to them, what he means is he says, I have shown them who God is. I have revealed what the Father is like. Now, how has he done that? Well, obviously, by his teaching, you know, Jesus taught for hours and hours. He taught wherever he went, and his main topic of conversation was about the coming of the kingdom of God and what the Father was like. But he also reveals the Father in one other way, right? Through his own irresistible life. As Hebrews says, in former times, God spoke to our fathers in many portions and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by what? His Son. In other words, Jesus over and over and over is saying, you want to know who God is? Look at me. He's exactly like me. By the way, is that a bold statement? Yes. Okay. If somebody goes around telling people, if you'd like to know what God is like, look at me. One of two things is the case, right? Either you need to call the men in white coats to get this guy fitted for a very special sleeveless jacket, (laughs) right? Or he is a deceiver and a liar. Those are the two main options, right? Well, there is one other option, and that is that he actually is who he claims to be. That's the least likely, by the way, option. But if that guy who walks around claiming to be God gets crucified and three days later is raised from the dead, okay, well, now we got overwhelming evidence that, in fact, the guy is who he claims to be. Amen? And Jesus says, to look at me is to see what God is like. That's why he prays, as he prays to his Father, he says, I have revealed your name, your character to these people. They are the people to whom Jesus has made it clear who God is. If you look at verse 9, Jesus says that these people, his followers, his disciples, the people, these are the ones for whom he's praying because they are the ones who belong to, to Jesus as gifts to him from the Father. Did you know that you and I, if we follow Jesus, are a present from God, given by God to the Son as a gift? Kind of an amazing thing that the Father chose us out of a sinful and rebellious mass of the world and and given us as gifts to Jesus, our Savior. 
And I think one of the things we ought to take from this section of this passage is that while what John 3.16 says is true, absolutely it is true, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's a true statement. But God also has a special love, a more specific love, for those whom he has chosen and saved. Those whom he calls into relationship with Jesus, those whom he gives salvation, he has a special love for them, and Jesus prays for them, prays for us. On top of that, according to verse 10, we're brought into a love into the love relationship that exists between the Father and the Son as we belong to both of them. Look at verse 10. Look at what it says. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. That just as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, that we then belong to both of them. We enter into that intra-Trinitarian love of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing. And even more than that, look at what verse 10 says again, and I, Jesus, is glorified in us. Really. That Jesus is glorified in your life and my life as we follow him. Did you know that you and I actually bring glory to Jesus as we come to him and follow him and know him and believe in him? That's what Jesus said. That that we bring glory to him. I think that is an amazing statement. Let's remember, according to Genesis, where did people come from? The dirt that God made creatures out of the dirt and somehow breathed life into them by his incredible creative power, breathed life into them, and Jesus says that as people follow Jesus, that they bring him glory. If you really think about that for just a second, it is amazing that we bring glory to the God of the universe. The God who made the stars. The God who made great white sharks. The God who made black holes and the rings of fire. The God who, as we stand on one side of the Grand Canyon and look across, go, whoa, and feel very small indeed. That God who made all these things, who made all things in all the universe, is glorified in you and I as we come to follow and believe and know his son. Now let me let me be very clear about something. In the context, as you look at this passage in context, uh, what you'll see is that Jesus is only praying for his first disciples, for those who are present with him at the time. But it seems clear to me from the scriptures that Jesus prays this way for us too. 
because we are among the people who fit the description he has just given of his followers. We are among those whom the Father has chosen and given to Jesus. We are also those to whom Jesus has revealed the Father's name. We are also among those who have kept his word, as Jesus says of his disciples. We are among those who have come to know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God who has been sent from the Father for us. And so I think this prayer is for us, too. And now that we've seen who Jesus is praying for, we need to see very closely what Jesus prays for those who follow him. And if you look at it, what you can see is that his prayer divides pretty easily into two parts. In one part, verses 11 to 13, Jesus addresses us as believers, and he talks about what he wants us to possess. And then later, in verses 14 to 19, he talks about how believers should relate to the world. So we want to look at the first one and see what Jesus prays for us. If you look closely what you see is that Jesus prays three things for the church. He prays for our salvation, he prays for our unity, and he prays for our joy. Our salvation, for our unity, and for our joy. So as you look at verse 11 there, he says, let's see here, yes, okay. He prays to, to God the Father to keep them in your name. Verse 12, when I was with them, I kept them in your name. I have guarded them. Okay, That idea is that Jesus, when he's talking about keeping and guarding, he's talking about our salvation. That's what his language of keeping and guarding is all about. Jesus has kept his followers in relationship with, with the Father, with the sole exception of one person. Who's that? Judas, the son of destruction. He says, I've kept them all except one person, the son of destruction, but even that is in fulfillment of Scripture, in fulfillment of the Old Testament, which predicted that this would happen. It is possible, and by the way, we need to see that. It is possible for a person to outwardly follow Jesus and not really know him personally. It is possible to do that. Judas followed Jesus outwardly, but inwardly he was not really among Jesus' followers. In his own heart, he had never experienced transformation through faith in Jesus. And so Jesus calls him the son of destruction. If you've been paying attention to the news of recent, you know that lately there has been almost like, a, like an outbreak, an epidemic of prominent Christian leaders who uh, said they were Christian, who did a lot of things that were Christian, who maybe led Christian worship, who taught from Christian pulpits to Christian people who now have said, uh, never mind, 
Like it's like everybody's Emily Latella, right? Never mind. Um, <laughs> some of you get that, but others of you do not. It's okay. I'm old. All right. <laughs> but in any case, they just all kind of said, oh, forget that. I don't want to walk with Jesus anymore. And that is not a new problem. Amen. Because there was one of Jesus' own original 12 followers who was one of them. So if it bothers you a great deal, and it should, that people who formerly said they followed Jesus walked away, understand that this is not a new thing. This does happen. And that is why Jesus prayed for the salvation of everyone who claimed to follow him. He says that they might be kept, that you might keep them, that you might hold on to them. And we have God's promise. This is a, this is a prayer that Jesus prays that the Father very clearly answers. If you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 30, it says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That there's a chain connecting all of these people. That everyone who is truly called of God will one day be saved. That God the Father does keep Jude 24, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his throne with great joy. The idea is that every person who is called of God would be genuinely saved and genuinely kept all the way to the end, that we would not fall away. And when people fall away, it happens in fulfillment of scriptural teaching about the wheat and the tares. This is not a new thing. This happens. The people who we thought were Christians walk away, and it is not that they lost their salvation, it's that they didn't have it to begin with. What they were just took a while to come to fruition. And part of the point of the parable of the wheat and tares is the idea that when they both come up, they both look like wheat. It isn't until later when the harvest is ready that you can tell that's a weed and that's wheat. But Jesus prays that the Father will keep all of the wheat, and he does. He does. He keeps all of the wheat. And in addition, Jesus prays for our unity Look at, the, look at your Bible. That they may be one. This is verse 11. Even as we are one. Um, I don't know if you understand that fully. I don't know if I understand that fully. But here's what Jesus is saying. The oneness between the Father and the Son is of a kind that 
because we can't really get our arms around it. Because when we talk about Trinity, we talk about three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how many gods? One. One God who eternally exists in three equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And their, their oneness as persons is of such a kind that there is one God who nevertheless exists in three persons, and we can't quite get our arms around that. The closest that we can get to that kind of unity according to the scriptures is the unity between Christ and the church and the unity between husbands and wives. Remember, uh, when, God's, when God says... Uh, when he talks to Adam and Eve in the garden, he says, and the two will become one. The two become one. That there's a tight relational unity that exists in imitation of the unity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But together they reflect the image of God. And again, I can't fully explain that or even really understand it, but that's the kind of unity that, that Jesus prays that we might have within the church toward one another. That we might be one even as he and the Father are one. That there would be a, a relationship that is permanent and interconnecting between me and you and you and everyone else who's part of the body of Christ. It's a, it's a hard thing to understand, but here's the reality. What Jesus is about in the church is bringing unity to his followers that there's a relational unity one to another. So the idea of, as an example, well, and I hear people say this sometimes. Um, well, you know, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, right? Is that true? Yeah. Okay. But scripturally, it's a completely abnormal thing. Right? It's a, it's a completely abnormal thing. It would be like, well, you know, you don't have to have both arms and legs to be, a to be a human. Well, that's true, but the absence of both arms and legs is a handicap that is pretty significant. And in the same way, when Jesus prays for unity, we need to see what he's saying. He's not just talking about you know, denominational unity or unity in terms of our confession of faith or unity in terms of, um, you know, not hating one another. That's kind of a bare minimum standard, right? We don't hate one another. He's talking about relational, deep connection between you and your brother and sister Christians that exists at a family-type level. That this is my brother, this is my sister, 
when I got a dollar, you got a dollar. When you suffer, I suffer. When you rejoice, I rejoice. That it's a deep soul-to-soul connection one to another. Unity. That's the way I'm looking at it. Deep connection. By the way, if you're not in a small group, just want to apply this text right here. Okay? Get a small group. All right? Um, And Jesus prays this for us, I think, because he knows that we're sinners and this is the hardest thing in the world for us to do. Hardest thing in the world to do. We like pseudo relationships. We like pseudo marriages. We like brief periods of friendliness where we don't have to open our souls to anybody else. Right? He's talking unity. This is what he means. Deep connection one to another. And by the way, we're not going to get in this life this kind of unity between sinners. The best we can do is start to kind of approach it. As we repent of our sin, as we forgive each other, we can start to kind of get closer to the kind of unity Jesus is talking about. But this is what he means. Deep love at a connected level one to another. He prays for our salvation. He prays for our unity. And notice this too. He prays for our joy. I love that. Look at verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have, look at, circle this word, my joy fulfilled in themselves. That we would share in Jesus' own joy in his relationship with the Father. How much joy does Jesus have in his relationship with God? As much as there is. And Jesus prays that we would experience that joy. That they would have my joy. I've said this before. I'll say it again. The Christian life is not grit your teeth until glory. Amen? We just like endure down here. Like every day, you know. Oh, here I got I get I gotta get out of bed and do this again. Oh, it's horrible. You know. That's not the idea. The idea is that we would enter into Jesus' own joy in relationship with him. And Jesus gives us his joy as he fulfills his mission at the cross, as he ascends to heaven after the resurrection, uh, we receive his joy. Where does it come from? It comes from knowing that you are loved by a sovereign God who sent his son for you. It is not dependent on good circumstances, in other words, but on a good God who loves us. 
Many times our circumstances are not good. They're not. Our circumstances can be terrible. But our relationship with a good God has not changed. And God still sent his son for you. And he still loves you regardless of what circumstances you're in. That's how Paul can write one of his longest letters about joy and enjoying life from prison. The kind of man does that. The kind of man that knows whether I live or whether I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. Joy. He prays for our joy. And he prays for three other things. Uh, in verses 14 and 19, he prays for our protection for our ministry, and for our holiness in the world. He prays for our relationships with people in the world. Specifically, he prays for, for these three things. If you look at 14 and 19 here, we need God's protection because, as Jesus says, verse 14, the world hates us because we are not of this world, because... Uh, and we are not of this world just like Jesus isn't. In other words, what's he mean by that? That when you are in relationship with Jesus, that you don't think, you don't speak, you don't behave like all of the other worldlings that you are surrounded by. And when you are not like them, they don't like you. That's normal. Remember we talked about that, right? Chapter 16, Jesus talks about that. The world hates you because you are not one of them. That's normal. And on top of that, according to the scripture here, the devil, the evil one, seeks your harm. The scripture actually takes the devil seriously, and so should we. Amen? That this is a real being who really exists, who really is in rebellion against God, and who really does hate him, and by extension, hate you. And so Jesus says he prays for you and me to be protected from, it says, the evil one. And from the world, his world, the devil's world. But don't miss the rest of the prayer here where Jesus also prays for our holiness and our ministry and he ties the two together. Look at what he says here, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he pray that? That he would take that we'd be taken out of the world. Or let me ask the question another way. When we baptize people, why don't we just pull them under till they quit bubbling? Send them to glory right now. <laughs> okay, why don't we do that? It is because, according to verses 16 to 19, that our mission is to be sanctified by the truth of God's word and sent out into the world. Holiness, ministry. Sanctified by the truth, sent out into the world. Notice that Jesus uses the word sanctify in both of its possible meanings. The word sanctify means to, to make holy. 
but it also means to be set apart for ministry, to be consecrated. And Jesus uses it both ways. Because Jesus was not only set apart for ministry, but he was also completely holy, and he wants the same thing for us. You know, there are two possible equal and opposite sins that we can fall into as it relates to our relationship with the world. One is isolation. To just Jesus prayed that we wouldn't be taken out of the world, but one of our favorite things to do as Christians is to do exactly that, to take ourselves out of the world. And so we get, you know, a separatistic movement, right, that we're all going to live, we're just going to pull back from everybody and go live on a, ho- on, a, on a hill somewhere and be in our holy hudit, you know. And it's just going to be us, and uh, we're going to shut the world outside of our door, right? So you get, you get, as an example, you get the Amish, right, who, like, holiness begins at, like, 1850, and if, you, um, and if you have things like zippers, all of a sudden you're going to fall into, into sin, right? You've got to have a horse and a buggy because, you know, you can't, you can't have a car. That would lead you into error, right? Uh, where did they get that idea? Not out of the Bible. Somebody came up with that, right? And they thought, well, we're going to be really holy by wearing weird clothes and not letting culture advance past 1850, right? Um, they're going to isolate themselves from the world. By the way, modern, more modern-day Christians do the same thing, right? There are people that, 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 that they decide, well, I'm only going to shop out of the Christian phone book. I'm only going to listen to Christian radio. I'm only going to um, talk to other Christians. I'm not going to make friends with any of my neighbors because they might be unbelievers. I'm not going to send my kid to the local school. Not to, not to say that any one of those choices might not be justified in some circumstances. But it is to say that sometimes we love to only hang out with other Christians. And isolation is not Jesus' goal for us. Now, there might be a reason to send your kid to Christian school or to homeschool your kid or whatever, right? But not as your goal is to isolate your family and yourself from everybody else. And I never want to talk to anybody who's an unbeliever. That's never a goal in Scripture. The other equal and opposite danger that Christians can fall into is not isolation but assimilation. Right? Jesus says they are not of the world. And a lot of Christians go, oh, really? Watch this. I'll be just like them. Right? And they just fit in. And nobody knows that they're a Christian. Because the only sign that they give to anybody is that they occasionally go to church. But otherwise, they look just exactly like everybody else. They behave the same. They talk the same. They think the same. They watch the same things on TV, etc. And they just assimilate into it. And if you ask them, are you a Christian? Well, yeah. How come your life isn't any different? Jesus holds ministry and holiness together. 
We're to minister in the world, but be distinct in the way we live from the world. Not distinct in terms of where we live or who we talk to. We're to be in the world. It's not to be just like them. By the way, notice I did not say God is calling you to be odd. Okay? I did not say, I did not say like, you know, be strange to the glory of God, right? That's not what the scripture says. You'll be strange enough if you live in a holy way distinct from the rest of the world. But Jesus holds the two together. Ministry and holiness go together. So you can't go be a monastic. You know, go put on a robe and live in a cloister. Don't do that. It's not Jesus' goal for you. On the other hand, you can't look just like a sinner in how you live your life. You can't say, well, everybody else lives with their girlfriend before they get married, so I'm going to do that too. You can't say, well, everybody else gets drunk on Friday night, so I'm going to do that too. You can't do that. Why not? Because your lack of holiness will undermine your ministry, for one thing, but also because it's displeasing to God whom you are meant to follow and obey. Not isolated, not assimilated either. Be in the world and not of it. Holiness and ministry. All right, uh, I'm about done. But let me just conclude with three important questions here. Here's the most important one. Are you, in fact, a follower of Are you, in fact, a follower of Jesus? By the way, it is hard to be a follower of Jesus, but it is really hard to pretend to be one. Are you, in fact, a follower of Jesus? Jesus' followers are those to whom the Father's character has been revealed through Christ. They are those who have come to know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, whom the Father sent to save them from sin and death and hell. They are those who obey his word because God has chosen them, and they are those whom God has saved and whom he keeps in his love. If you aren't sure if you are in fact a follower of Jesus, would you say afterwards? Would you come up and talk to me? Would you be bold enough? crazy enough, even if you've been coming to this church for 50 years and you go, look, I don't know how to answer that question about whether or not I'm sure that I know Jesus or not. Would you make sure that you know Jesus before you leave today? I'm going to be here a long time and there's nothing I would rather do than make sure that everyone who hears Jesus' words actually knows Secondly, here's a question. What are your relationships like with your brothers and sisters? I don't just mean the people who are with whom you share DNA. I'm talking about, although they're important too, by the way, your faith in Jesus is meant to get into the nitty-gritty of your life, including your blood family. 
I love everybody I go to church with. It's just those people that I eat Thanksgiving with I can't stand, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, no, but seriously, what are your relationships like with your brothers and sisters? Jesus aims for us to have unity with one another, just like he enjoys with the Father. What are your relationships like? I think a partial answer to if you have bad relationships with other people, that's usually not a, an outcome, that's usually a symptom of a bigger problem in your relationship with Jesus. If your relationship with Jesus is good, your relationship with other people who follow Jesus will also be good. If your relationships are bad, there's probably something you need to do in your relationship with Jesus, an area of sin you need to repent of, an area of forgiveness you need to receive or extend. If your relationships with other people rat you out on where you are in your relationship with him. Here's the last question. What are your relationships like with people in the world? People out there, people on 29, people who vote differently from you, people with whom you work, people with whom you share a neighborhood, people maybe with whom you're even married. Because I know some of you don't have believing spouses. What are your relationships like with them? Have you isolated yourself from these people? Have you assimilated yourself to them? We are called to be in the world, but not of it. Engage with lost people without becoming someone who looks and lives just like a lost person. We're to shine light in the darkness. Has the devil encouraged you to isolate yourself from ministry to people in the world because that's hard? Or conversely, has he seduced you with the lure of assimilation to it? Because that's way easier. Either way, if you've fallen victim to either one of these, if you've gotten off the road and into one of these ditches, now is the time to repent and to turn back to the Lord and be forgiven and to pursue your calling to be holy and minister to people in the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus' prayers sharpen us and rub up against the hard edges and sharp corners of our life. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you speak to us clearly in your word and call us back to your original plan and purpose for us. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who does not know if they really authentically know Jesus, that today would be the day that that changes. And Father, I pray for the rest of us that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. Help us, Father, we pray.
by your Holy Spirit. Amen.